Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. I've been looking for a guest for this topic for some time. This is a topic that I talk a lot about in my Food Health and Society course at Emory University. It's a topic that covers sustainability issues, kind of economic development, and alternative food sources. We're going to be talking about the field of entomophagy today, or the eating of insects as a food source. Our guest today is Dr. Aaron Dosi. He is a PhD, biomedical scientist, biochemist, and self-taught entomologist and passionate nature enthusiast. Aaron received his bachelor's in biochemistry and molecular biology from Oklahoma State University in 2001 and his PhD in biomedical science, biochemistry, and molecular biology from the University of Florida's College of Medicine in 2006. He started the business All Things Bugs, LLC, in 2011, which was the world's first wholesaler of insect-based food ingredients. As an industry leader, Dr. Dosey published the comprehensive foundational textbook, Insects as Sustainable Food Ingredients. He has received over $5 million in research funding from organizations like the Gates Foundation, USDA, DARPA, and OCAST. He also has 30 um, peer-reviewed publications and multiple patents. The current theme of his research is to capitalize on the biodiversity of invertebrates for applications, including their uses in medicine, agriculture, and how insects can contribute to a more sustainable food supply. Dr. Dosey also founded the nonprofit Invertebrate Studies Institute, which is dedicated to building the world's largest insect zoo, a biodome for public education and entertainment, as well as research, including genome sequencing of insect species on Earth and insect-based drug discovery. So lots of things, bugs. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Erin. It's great to see you. Thanks for inviting me. Great. Why don't we just start with some of the basics? Walk us through a little bit about what is entomophagy and is this just a kind of a dietary fad or is this actually a very common practice in different parts of the world? So it's a common practice in certain parts of the world, particularly South and Central America, Southeast Asia, uh, Africa, or the places where that's it's more commonly in, in recent centuries have uh, been practiced in, in, in the past hundred years. So entomophagy is the eating of insects. So that includes a bug, eating another bug, a mantis, eating a cricket, a spider, eating anything that eats a, eats a bug, but it's been more recently coined for human consumption. And it's, begin, it's the beginning of a new industry that started. It's, we were one of the first companies about 2011, between 2011 and 2013 is when things started going up. And, but we're transitioning from the traditional. So like around the world, you mentioned people that eat insects, just roast them on a stick or put them in a pan whole, going from a traditional cultural use to an industrial use, which is grinding them into a powder, into liquids and in formulating more recognized common to manufactured food products using insects as a, as a ingredient, as a commodity. That's really fascinating approach because like you said, we're, you're moving more towards this wholesale ingredient product, like a protein rich ingredient product. Can you walk us through 
what is what does that process look like? I know you've had a lot of innovation in how how you cultivate these insects and how you go from having the bug into having a powder that can be used as a food ingredient in, in creating different food items. First of all, how did you select what type of bug to focus on? And yeah, just maybe walk us through how does it all come together to make a product? Yeah, so we picked our target species, like many things, based on opportunity and somewhat based on the market. So we were one of the pioneers in the market. We didn't have a lot of precedent to go off of, but for, for 60, 70 years, at least, there have been farms uh, farming crickets for fish bait purposes as pet feeders for reptiles. We work with the oldest uh, cricket farm in the United States to source our crickets. So they've gone tra through transitions of different markets over the decades. And so I started with crickets because they were available. We could get them frozen. And actually, we somewhat created that supply chain. We found the probably only one or two farms early on that were freezing. And mealworms are the second choice, but they're coming becoming my favorite. They were also farmed for various kind of more niche applications, smaller applications than the bigger food industry but um, that's quickly transitioning. Crickets, high protein. A lot of the companies started with them because of availability, high protein, lower fat than some of the other insects and just the cute nature of the marketing crickets chirp. They hop. We have Jiminy Cricket as a character that familiar with his familiarity involved in crickets, plus the availability. It's a perfect storm for the industry starting with crickets. And I think you're yeah, already starting to see mealworms and some of the other farmed insects begin to maybe catch up to crickets or ship past them. This is a really good point. You had a supply chain in place. You mentioned that they were provided frozen. How does that benefit kind of the processing or what does it mean to process a frozen cricket or a frozen mealworm? So the, the standard or the more modern professional industrial supply chain and ingredient manufacturing involves buying them frozen from a food grade farm. So a farm that is raising insects for human consumption with either local or state or in some countries, national certification that these insects are food grade. The frozen allows you to ship them, gives them a longer shelf life. Most food processing plants won't take live insects that are moving and hopping around or live anything. So they have to be in, in a still state when they arrive, then you treat them like a, like any kind of matter material. Our process is to, so then you want to dry them. You, cook them and dry them in order to kill the bacteria like any other food product and then make them into a powder. So you can do that by drying first and then grinding, which was being done before we got involved. But that requires a lot of heat and a lot of things roasting them. And I was doing that in my early research before I even had a lab or anything. Like, like we could tell you about the fun history of the company starting in a little apartment. But it was obvious that there needed to be a better way. So I learned about how other protein powders are made and spray dry is the, the, the gold standard in the food industry for making a, a powder type ingredient, especially if you're starting with the wet or a, a product that has a lot of water starting out. So we grind them up and then treat them like a liquid, pasteurize it to kill the bacteria and like you would milk or something. And then we spray dry it, but which involves spraying the material, the slurry or liquid into a mist, into a big stainless steel cylinder while the particles, the droplets fall through um, hot air. And by the time uh, they hit the bottom, they're dried, dried particulates. Uh, and I could go into the benefits and all the lovely details of that. Yeah, please do. This is really neat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so the spray drying is nice. And that's why the food industry uses it so commonly is 
that you, it's more gentle. So you're still heating. You still have to pasture. You have to do things to kill your bacteria and whatnot, but you use less heat. So you get a more homogeneous heating in the liquid stage instead of heating some portion of the product that gets hot and then the middle part doesn't get hot and you can circulate the liquid. And then when you're spray drying, you're getting warm air to dry the part particle, but you're getting evaporative cooling at the same time. So it's not as hot. It's, it's cooling while it's drying. So you're getting the benefit of the heat to remove the water, but the particle stays in better shape with less heat exposure. Plus it's a more homogeneous particle. So if you roast the cricket in an oven, all the insides, all the protein sticks to the exoskeleton like a shellac. And then you grind it and plus it's denatured and it's in a lot more, a lot worse shelf life and there's a lot worse condition. When you grind it, you'll never separate that from the exoskeleton. It's more sticky, not as fluffy, stronger aroma because you've used more heat. Whereas the spray dried stuff, you probably remove some of the aroma notes to the drying and the evaporation. Plus each particle is a little nugget of protein that's homogeneous because you've mixed it. It's each, each particle is more identical to the next rather than having different parts that are, have different consistency. So then you can get a finer powder. You can blend it with other things. You don't get mouthfeel. You can't detect the particles of the chitin and things like that. That's really cool. I like that you went, so as, as a scientist would think about this, how you went from looking at how other proteins are prepared and creating this nice homogenous mixture. So with this dried powder, how does one go? So you're providing the wholesale powder to other companies that might then produce a kind of product? Like what types of products do you find Cricut powder are being transformed into? So the first products in the industry were protein bars because technologically they're very easy. There are hundreds of bars on the market. There are contract manufacturers that will make a bar with your name on it, with your favorite flavor at small scale. You know, you, um, it was just a very available simple thing. In fact, some of the first company in the United States was doing it by hand in a commercial kitchen. We have done, and we have sold to companies doing the protein bars. We're supplying the first protein bar companies in the United States with their ingredient because we were the only one they could buy a thousand pounds of cricket powder from in the world at the time. And we've sold to ones making snacks, tortilla chips, baked goods, even pet treats. I'm trying to think of some other examples. I think one company was experimenting with pastas, cookies, a lot of different products. With our research, we've done extra, a lot of extruded products, pastas, like Cheetos, like a cheese curl kind of snack, cereals, like a Cheerio type of cereal, extruded puffed cereals, tortillas, pastas, which tortillas aren't extruded, but that was one of the things we've done. And I think the extrusion is, is fantastic because you, with one machine, you can make pasta, snacks, cereals, all kinds of different things. And we've done, uh, we have several market ready prototypes and uh, formulations of the cereals and the pasta and the snacks ready to go. So I think that's, that has a lot of promise, but we haven't had a lot of clients doing that. So we're plus with an ingredient company, you don't get a lot of brand recognition. It's hard to market. It's hard to get investors or anybody excited about an ingredient company. So we're really considering launching some of these products on our own. Nice. Thanks. And so when you say extrusion, I'm wondering, is I'm not super familiar with that term and I would bet that many of our listeners are not. Can you explain or define what do you mean by extruded products? What does that process look like? I've had to learn food science very rapidly over the past amid other things during the research and whatnot, but extrusion, the technical term could be not 
from clear on the technical term of extrusion, I think it means pulling a material, but in the food science context, in a food manufacturing, you put, you pour the material into a machine and that has these screws, either a single screw or two screws, the twin screw is very common. I think there are ones with many screws maybe, but then the material is blended and squeezed down into a screw in a pipe, basically. And in the threads, if you can imagine the space, things are blended, are mixed together. There's heat from the friction. So there can be some amount of cooking and they're squeezing and compacting and based on the, and then you can add moisture in different, in the, in an extruder at different stages in the screw, you can have that the first part that's heated and the second part that's cooled and moisture incorporated and that you can just do a lot of diverse things while the materials in this group coming out. So you can use it to compact. And at the end there's, you can do it uh, with a lot of heat and pressure. That's where the puffed things like your cheese curls and cereals and things at the end, if you've done it in such a way where there's at the right level of moisture, heat and pressure, when it comes out, it puffs, it pots because all the little water particles want to be expanded to a gas and they haven't been able to. And so when it gets at atmospheric pressure, which is lower than what is in there, it goes pop. And if you, that's the engineering, that's the food science in it. You get your formulation, your ingredients, your moisture, all the parameters of the machine, right? You get a nice puff, crispy thing that comes out. That's incredible. Yeah. I think we forget often we're looking down the cereal aisle or the chip aisle. How are these cereals actually made? There's a lot of physics, a lot of engineering and chemistry that goes into these products and even with our cricket powders. That's cool. So I know one of the, one of the other two things that I've heard a lot about when it comes to this idea of using insect protein as an alternate source of protein to mammalian protein, like your beef or your swine or chicken, poultry. Um, and it has to do, one, one thing has to do with the nutritional content of the insect proteins itself or the ingredient materials. And the other is the sustainability of production. We've talked a lot about this on the show about we're reaching eight, we've already reached 8 billion people on the planet. We are putting a lot of strain on our ecological systems, especially with large animal rearing practices. And even with very condensed animal raising with, with chicken houses and the levels of antibiotics, other things that have to go into these systems that are not sustainable and could have bad implications for our health. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you know about the nutritional value of edible insects. And I know it may differ depending on the insect ingredient, but also, what does this mean from a big picture stance, like for sustainability, if this were adapted, is this more of a climate friendly practice that we could consider? Yeah, just maybe around, I asked a lot of questions. I apologize. I'm sure. interested in those topics. There's a yeah. lot going on there, but the, yeah. the good news is all of the answers are positive. That's the thing we've been trying to engage in. Some, there have been some major food manufacturers contact us, buy cricket powder from me, do their own R&D. So they're on the fence. They're on the sidelines. Is, is often they are, they're waiting for it to be economical for the supply chain. They're just waiting for the right business opportunities for the big food manufacturers, which it's catch 22 because for this to make an impact in the world, we need them to start working with this to scale this up. But you mentioned sustainability. That's one of my big interests is helping protect biodiversity, reducing uh, my, one of my biggest interests is reducing humans impact on biodiversity and on the natural world. Agriculture is probably, there's a lot of talk about climate change and 
energy and, and transportation, but I, but inter, uh, agriculture has the biggest impact on nature in the world. If you just look at Google Earth, look at anywhere in the world, almost every country is mostly cleared for farms. It horrifies me to look at Google Earth when there's a disaster in the world, the BBC or somebody zooms in and they're passing, they're, they're looking at one, a thing that happened somewhere, which is maybe sad, but then they pass millions of acres of just complete uh, horrific disaster. And I, I hope we would talk about that one day, but, but insects use less resources because they're, they're very, they're one thing is their biology is very efficient. They're very efficient at converting nutrient, their feed into body mass instead of just pooping it out or using it for body heat. So they're cold-blooded, they're poikilothermic is the scientific term. They don't use the calories for body heat, like a cow or a pig or a chicken. So they're, they're efficient in that way, using less feed, they use less water because they have an exoskeleton and a cuticle that they're designed to not dry out, which kind of goes back to the food science, why you have to cook them a long time because they're designed to resist desiccation to, to not dry out. So they use less water. Some of the insects, like your mealworms, don't you almost have to add almost no water to them at the farm. They, they're resource efficient, so you can do them vertically. They're very space efficient. You get a lot of production per volume, per cubic meter of production. You can grow them in cities, so you, have, you can reduce transportation close to it. You could build them right next to a food manufacturing plant or in a place like Chicago where there's a lot of food manufacturing. So there's, the, there's a lot of arguments. It, it, even if you compare them to, say, soy, which has to be outdoors in the two-dimensional field, you only use a small part of the plant instead of the whole plant. There, there's a lot of arguments to be made that they're even more sustainable than a lot of the plant proteins. Food security, again, you can raise them, grow them at small scale or large scale, closer to where people are. Their life cycle is very rapid, so you can replenish them quickly. They're very prolific, hundreds of eggs per female, so you can grow lots, so you can scale them up a lot. There are hundreds of species that are edible, so if one starts to fail due to a disease or something, you could go from a cricket to farming mealworms, and the mealworms are very unlikely because of the distance of the biology to be susceptible to the same uh, issues. They're nutritious and you're getting good quality animal protein, essential amino acids, essential fatty acids, a lot of omega-3s and low saturated fat. Nutrition-wise, they're very good. And also for food security, you're less, of course, they have to eat plant matter as a diet, but they need much less because of their efficiency. So you compare it to, again, say a soy field or a corn field or something, they're less susceptible to a drought because they're raised indoors. It's, they're not exposed to environmental contamination, pathogens and things are out there raised indoors. So you can keep the environment very clean and control and tightly controlled. So food security, sustainability, uh, low impact on biodiversity environment, less pesticide use because you're using less feed and not growing them in a field and controlling the inside environment. So you're not going to have pests so much because you're controlling what goes in the uh, clean label that you mentioned, at least right now, of course, my company has worked with some DARPA funding on exotic projects like genomics and genetic engineering of some species, but the farms right now, there are no GMO insects on the market. There would be a very long time before that probably happens. We don't need antibiotics or steroids. They're very tough. Mealworms are extremely tough as a crop. It's funny, even co comparing insects to other things, they're all very tough compared to your cows and chickens and things, but even comparing mealworms to crickets, mealworms are way tougher than crickets as far as robustness and things. Yes, yeah, so your clean label benefits, they call that very attractive for your people that are interested in clean label and re reduction of chemicals and things. Well, like, well, like, this is what fascinates me is, 
I, I've thought a lot about this idea of alternate protein sources and what are sustainable ingredients. I feel like insects don't get enough attention on the global foods stage. We've spoken with people researching pea proteins. In a recent episode I did with the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization and Pea proteins and these alternate plant-based proteins are you know, being heavily transformed, but they're being shipped back and forth in these containers are grown in one country, shipped to the another country to get processed and shipped back. And so they're not really sustainable. And we, when you're talking about cattle, I grew up in the, born in the yeah. 70s, grew up in the 80s and 90s when, I don't know if you remember this slogan, beef, it's what's for dinner. So it was like, I grew up in, in cattle country in central Florida, where a lot of the beef gets, the cattle get shipped out west to concentrated feedlots. And when I think about the load that beef places on our ecological systems, you mentioned soy and corn. A lot of that's not going to human feed. It's all, it's going to animal feed, livestock feed mm -hmm. for our, for beef, swine and poultry. And we rely on antibiotics, steroids, all of these practices that are undeniably placing stressors on both our the health of our planet and the health of our populations of the humans and, and the animals. So I guess there are other protein options that have come out. I don't know if you've seen any of these things on lab-grown meats, which I also find to be very tricky because those you can't grow kind of animal-based cell culture without... Um, something called bovine serum. So you're still using animal products. Yeah. There is, and I'm like, oh, and, and then you also have to use antibiotics in that as well. I know this well as I'm sure you do, your background in biochemistry and cell biology. So it's just, it's interesting that we've gone down all of these various paths to try and come up with some innovative solution. And yet here there are insects that are nutritionally incredibly robust. I've seen videos for small scale forms in like basically container ships where they have buckets of insects and all they need is like a bit of a carrot and that, and that feeds the mm -hmm. entire colony. It's pretty incredible, as you were saying, how little they need. I've seen other projects for small scale um, economic development and economically developing nations where for like small, tiny micro loans for women where they can grow insects in basically the size of a garbage can on the in their house and then sell those whole insects at local markets. They're not being processed in the same way that we would consume as, a, as an ingredient here. But yeah, someone that like saw this trend, I think it's impressive that you got into this back in 2011 because it's still, it's still not fully, I think, adopted by the food industry. But as a scientist, kind of what drew you to that? Like, what did you see that others didn't that kind of led you to say, you know what, I'm going to put, this is where I'm going to take my skills and I'm going to make innovations here. What brought you to that decision? So I saw it at a conference one time. There were just a, a group of people did a little symposium and, and I said, this is interesting. And actually one of the professors sent around to the group of us that met afterward advertisement for the Gates Foundation. So there's like anything in life, you can have a beautiful story about inspiration and things. And there's some of them that, you know, mentioned, but. There's also practicality. You have to survive, right? And I was looking for a faculty job. And one of the things they said you could do to help get in more interviews was get a grant. And then this guy sent me this Gates Foundation grant. Um, and it was uh, two pages. And I said, why not? I can do it during lunch in a couple of weeks. <laughs> and they, they wanted to fund it. And I was actually close to the end of my postdoc with the USDA. So I was going to be employed for a while. I was worried. And I said, how do I do that? And they, you know, our said, 
great, you want to fund me. And they said, well, you put independent, where do you work? And I said, in a few months, I'm not going to work anywhere, I guess, unless it's in a, one of these uh, universities calls. And they said, we can't just fund a dude. And I said, why not? Just put dude. <laughs> and they, they said, um, we have to have an entity. So I filed the LLC. I had to Google and find out what an LLC was and create my entity. But so there's some opportunity aspect, but I guess what drew me to it as a topic scientifically was just, I knew I've been a bug guy my whole life, a biochemist, but I like bugs. I grow with them, collect them. And, and I just know about the efficiencies of insects in biology. They're just they're tough. They're at the top of the chain as far as they adapt, how well adapted to living on earth compared to most of your other, uh, many other types of animals. Uh, so like, yeah, they're, they're tough. You can grow them. I've grown them in little containers. There's gotta be something to this. And then I read more about the other research about their feed conversion, people that have actually done measurements on feed conversion efficiency. And I think this is almost a no brain unless you find something horrifically scary about some com chemical component that one makes or something, unless there's something we don't know yet, this makes a lot of sense. But people have been eating them for thousands of years, including even in modern times and places like Southeast Asia and so they're eating for the crickets. They're not getting sick. There's no data suggests there's any you know problem here. Yeah, let's do it. And my background in natural products, chemistry, grinding up things, extracting stuff. I thought I started with the ingredient because I want to know how to grind stuff up and deal with natural materials, proteins. And actually the a little anecdotal uh, story that when I got the grant, I, all, I always jump in projects even before, as I say, the ink is dry on the papers, which for a few months, there was some problem with paperwork and I was scared I wouldn't get the funding. But I was, the first thing I ever did was go down to the pet shop and buy a couple of thousand uh, mealworms or simple worms, I think they were either mealworms or superworms. And I was late at night grinding them up at the kitchen. I was, the first project was make a ready-to-use therapeutic food or a product to help malnourished children using insects as a sustainable protein source. And that was the Gates project. And so I Googled, I had seen Anderson Cooper talking about pumping that on TV. So I thought, and I looked up the rest of the formulation and they used milk powder. I was like, maybe if you could replace the milk powder, it would be more sustainable. So I was grinding them up in the kitchen with my blender and squeezing them, making book juice and cheesecloth. And I was like, I wonder if I can pasteurize it without it crapping out. Like in the NMR, when we put a protein sample in the NMR tube, we called it crapping out <laughs> when it would turn into white denature and turn fall into the bottom of the tube. So I was in there pasteurizing it late at night, watching Letterman cooking. And then, then it started to congeal as most of your proteins tend to do. And I said, okay, but what can I make a burger patty? And I poured it in a pan and poured some seasoning and ended up making a delicious taco meat that my family actually enjoyed <laughs> quite a bit. But um, I guess that was the, the food science act. Before I even knew what food science was, the, the part that it attracted to the me as a, based on my background and things that are fun to do. But the, the efficient, the biological efficiency is what drew me to it as something that really makes a lot of sense. And 13 years later, still makes a lot of sense, makes even more sense now. And now it's a little industry that's, there's some interesting things happening in the industry. I, for those might want to work with us financially or in other ways, this is a very good time to get in, involved and to start scaling this because there are big food manufacturers interested in insect protein and it comes down to cost. The limit, and I don't know if at some point you will ask, so it makes so much sense. Why aren't we doing it already? Yeah. Yeah. Like our species is known for doing what doesn't make sense, but, or not doing what makes sense, but this cost, it's not even the yuck factor. I've talked to many big food companies. Let's you know, start with the Amazon. We need celebrity chefs on this. Like, how do we popularize right. this? Because the science, the evidence is there. You know, we have, mm -hmm. they have great nutritional content. We know that it's sustainable. 
I would think that cost wouldn't be such a great factor. It must be. Is there a comparator in terms of cost per pound of the material that you can compare to what it costs to produce a pound of poultry or a pound of beef? Like, how does that all compare? Well, we could use a little funding and I applied for some. We didn't get it to do a life cycle analysis to actually calculate some of this data, food to take or farm to table. There, I think there's some, there are some LCA life cycle analysis studies out there that show insects are very good. It's on your sustainability and efficiency of product production and celebrity shops would help. If Jose Andreas or somebody, I, it would be amazing to work with somebody like that. And I think some level of promotion, you know, athletes and whatnot would go a long way to prove because there are you know, two things that the food industries are looking for, mostly cost. If it's cheap enough, all of them say, if it's cheap enough, we'll buy it. We'll formulate, we'll do the promotion. They have billion dollar marketing budgets. They can handle yup factors. They can get convinced people yeah. to market. But they say it's got to be economic sense. It's got to be cheap. But the other side is that if a startup had wild success, if something we did, if we put our one of our cereals out on the market, it went viral. Or if we got a celebrity involved, if they could, if they knew that there was a demonstrated market, if we could get a product to market, and get it to be very big. That's what they do a lot. They buy up startups. They will partner with the startup for a period of time and then buy them out. Then they buy ones that are successful. So we can prove the market and in, in scaling up, we'll get the price down because I used to think it was lack of technology in the farms. They're all manual. The ones we use, we used to do a lot of manual processes. Mm -hmm. And that's a big part of it, keeping the price high because there are lots of labor costs, vigilancies, but we can. We've already solved those things technologically. I have some equipment that I designed that would solve some like freezing them faster, packaging and larger packaging and things. But still, economies of scale will get the cost yeah, down cool. very quickly. So if you're, instead of making 3,000 pounds per batch, if I was making 100,000 pounds of spray dried material, the cost would drop precipitously. drop a lot. Well, I also, when you talk about like economic terms, I think one, there's one factor, I don't know if you've thought about this, but there are factors where government policies also distort the economic environment. When we think about the Farm Bill and the incredible subsidies that go towards commodity crops like corn and soy, which make, in turn, meat-based proteins very cheap compared to their true costs, because we artificially lower those costs by the heavy, heavy corn subsidies. That's not so you're not really comparing apples to apples there because you're dealing in a space that does not have any subsidies compared right. to one that does. So that, I think that's another point to, to think about is how, does, how do our own food policies affect that? You know where I'd, I'd love to see these products would be like the protein powder aisles. You have these incredible, very pricey, if you've ever, I, I have teenage boys at home, so they're always about the protein shakes and bulking up. and so. All this whey protein, which is, of course, a dairy product that's included in those. And I wonder what's the nutritional value of that really? And is, a, is something beyond whey an insect-based protein actually healthier as an option for something like that? I think those are questions we need to investigate scientifically and in the food science space. But yeah, I think you're right. It takes a lot of, there's a lot of fine tuning that has to happen in the marketplace first to get there. Yeah. Yeah. And research, there's... I- it's a lot of it's bandwidth. How much time do I have to write NIH proposals? But one of the things that would help the industry as well as our company, as well as part of the industry, but is would go a long way to 
answering some of these questions about the nutrition, providing hard data on this would be mm-hmm. a something that would go into, say, a dossier for grass status, generally regarded as state. I've been looking for funding for that for a while to do a, a tox study, a little clinical study or animal trials. There are companies you can do that to contract out. You can collaborate with universities on this kind of stuff, which would, I would love to find an opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. But that's something, there is some data out there. There've been a few studies. One was a big one a few years ago, became very popular that there was some evidence of improved gut health consuming insect-based, like they give the control or the test group of muffins or something every day with cricket powder. And they found improved biomarkers for gut inflammation. Some of the gut microflora, the back, gut bacteria were healthier versions. I don't know which ones are healthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Some of that. And so yeah, that, I, that was a very positive study that came out. And I, I'm not aware of any negative studies. And the ones I have seen do either show a new, neutral or positive benefit. Yeah. I think it's a very, I think it's a very interesting space, ripe with opportunity, ripe with possibilities for scientists to really help also lay the groundwork and understanding the nutritional benefits, like the straight up nutrient composition of these, but as you're saying, also other impacts on gut health, on inflammatory markers, et cetera. Yeah. I want to, I know we're getting close on time before. I want to make sure that we also address this other organization that you are involved in. It is the Invertebrate Studies Institute, which it sounds like is more tailored towards public education. What can you tell us about this institute? So Invertebrate Studies Institute, or we call it ISI, uh, the acronym, Mm -hmm. is a nonprofit I founded going back to when I was applying to faculty jobs. One of the, my idea was to combine insects and the biochemistry of biomedical science and do insect-based drug discovery because there's very little, there are more insect species than anything else, but there are very few natural products chemists have ground up insects and looked for drug lead compounds. And it can, and, and it's also at a time where there's a lot of other synthetic chemistry types of solutions that are overtaking natural products a bit. But the biodiversity, I think, of insects lends itself. It needs to be support, especially with the biodiversity loss. We need to start studying as much of the biodiversity as we can, insects being a majority, before maybe it's gone. So I was growing some insects. I won't go into too much detail, but I had a side project on marking stick in the defense chemistry that I did some publications. And I wanted to partner with the Zoom to grow them. And so I could go collect the samples and I couldn't find any zoos that were interested. And it occurred to me that the, so I'm going to grow these in a lab and nobody will see them and they're big and they're cool and they're colorful. And then the stuff they're growing in the zoos, nobody's getting access to, to do any research. Why not have a place you could do both? And then I got to, got to dreaming and things, but invertebrate studies institutes core mission is immersion of the public in biodiversity and the science associated with biodiversity because you can't do everything. We're focusing on genome sequencing because I have a background. We published two insect genomes this year that sequence the genomes of all the insects in the world, starting with the walking sticks, which is our favorite group because they're great for insect zoos. They're big and showy. They're very charismatic, great for education. Plus they're 4,000 species, which small is small for an insect order. So you could do a whole order of insects faster than you could say all the beetles, which there are 300,000 of those. And do in insect-based drug discovery for our research focus and for the public education, entertainment, edutainment, if you will, build the world's largest insect zoo, which the, the bar is low as far as zoos go. So you could easily have a thousand species 
of insects in in the past in the other insect zoo and a biodome with tropical fruits, just immerse people in biodiversity, show them fruits and insects and butterflies and plants and think weird things that they've never seen before right in front. Because I think it's easy to not care about things that are on another continent. Oh, that orchid's pretty, but why do I care? Well, yes, okay, there are thousands of insects going extinct because you've, you've burned down most of Brazil to graze cattle or something, so what? A lot of people, it's easy to say so what. But if we show it to them, if we bring in a facility and make the most efficient use of it for research, both research and education, and, and, and explore the synergies between those, have scientists do the programs, be involved in the programs and the displays, and show the research that we're doing at that place as well as what others are doing. I think this kind of a Jurassic Park concept is something that's, actually, that's needed. I think the time is right for this kind of thing. Of course, it sounds like a dream, but... We're supposed to dream. Of. Zoo. I like that. It's a dream. The insect zoo. Where can I send folks to find out more about your work? I know you're on social media. You want to share information so they can find you? Uh, yeah. So the Invertebrate Studies Institute website is isibugs.org. All Things Bugs website is allthingsbugs.com. Those would be a good place to start. We're on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Both organizations have the profiles on all three of those media you mentioned my book earlier yeah can check that out on want me to show it to you yeah please <laughs> yeah so this is the book insects the sustainable food ingredients the first uh, textbook in this field and it's available on i believe amazon but definitely elsevier if you the publisher is elsevier if you go to the elsevier website you can find it you, there's also links to it on the all things bugs website links to, to where they can find the book but yeah, hit us up on Facebook is the best place for both organizations. All Things Bugs is very active on Twitter. I'm very active on LinkedIn. And or just shoot us an email. Awesome. Thank you so much, Erin, for coming on the show. It was great speaking with you. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded for you today on Squadcast. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth, for bringing us a great show each and every week. If you didn't know it already, we are on social media as well. We're on TikTok where we have some fun clips from the show. We're on Instagram and Twitter. So head over to Foodie Pharma. It's F-O-D-I-P-H-A-R-M-A on all of those different outlets. If you want to find out more about the show and access our fun swag and check out some of our great episodes, we're in season six now. So there's over uh, 150 episodes you can check out. You can go to our website at foodiepharmacology.com. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and we'll see you next time. <music>